Luke 13, just to kind of catch us up on where we're at in Luke's gospel, we've been doing, we've been going through Luke for a minute. Uh, it's been a little bit. Uh, we are in what's called the travel narrative now. And that started way back at the end of chapter nine, where Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem. He, he's been teaching, he's been, he's been uh, preaching, he's been healing, and, and he makes this shift and he sets his face to Jerusalem because he knows that's what his mission is. That's, that's where it's going to go. That's where it's going to end. So it starts with this Jesus setting his face to go to Jerusalem. And it ends around chapter 19 with the story of Zacchaeus where, where Luke tells us Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. So his mission starts in 9 and works its way all the way to, to 19 with this idea of Jesus being the one who's to die, the one who's to seek and save the lost. Much of the movement during this travel narrative, um, it, it has to do with, with Jesus's back and forth, his interactions, sometimes a little more benign and other times very hostile with the Pharisees and the other religious, later, religious leaders. Um, if we go back to chapter 10, uh, 25, we get the parable of the Good Samaritan. And uh, we, you know how this one starts, right? This lawyer thinks it's a good idea to stand up and do what? Put Jesus to the test. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're not the smartest guy in the room, it's always good to keep your mouth shut. Like, we'll see a little bit more of this later, but it's that, I, I don't know if it's Abe Lincoln or Mark Twain or who it is, better to remain silent and be thought of fool than to what? Open your mouth and remove all doubt, right? Um, but this lawyer obviously did not get the memo. Um, he opens his mouth and, and proceeds to put Jesus to the test. So that's one interaction. We move forward a little bit further. Luke 11, um, Jesus doesn't pull any punches. He, he pronounces these woes on the Pharisees and, and the lawyers. And uh, just to give a little flavor of, of what those were like, he says to the, to the Pharisees in uh, verse 37 of chapter 11, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. That's great. You look great. You're wearing a collared shirt. You took a shower. You look fantastic. But guess what? You're full of greed and wickedness. Now the lawyers, you know, they kind of get their feelings hurt here. And so what do they do? They're, they're like the lawyer in the parable of the Good Samaritan. What's he do? They open their mouths. Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. Well, yeah. And now it's going to, now the aim was over there. And now the aim's coming this way. Uh, and Jesus said to them, woe to you lawyers also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Last week, Dr. Cook went through the end of chapter 12, talking about the principle of the leaven principle, that it just takes a little bit of leaven to, 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 to make a, a lump of dough rise. Early in chapter 12, verse 1, Jesus warns his, his followers, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So what we've got here is this, this movement that is pushed along, this narrative that's pushed along by Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees. We gave just two weeks ago, Luke 13, verse 10, uh, and following, but the ruler of the synagogue, what did he do after this woman who was hunched over, couldn't stand up straight, suffered, 
couldn't, couldn't look people in the eye for 18 years, this guy, what's his reaction to that? It's to be indignant. He's spitting mad that Jesus has, quote unquote, worked on the Sabbath. He's broken the Sabbath, which we'll get to in our passage as well. Um, and then last week, towards the end, Jesus is, 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 is talking about striving to enter through the narrow door. And he, and he, he, he announces, he says that there's going to be some of you that I don't know. And they'll say, we t- you taught in our streets. We ate and drank with you. And he'll say, I never knew you. And then he goes on. He says, people will come from the east. Verse 29. People will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. We're getting to this point where, where Jesus is, is zeroing in on the Pharisees as kind of the examples of those who are the first who will be last. Um, you know, the Pharisees are kind of like those characters in movies that we kind of like to not like. So I don't know how many Harry Potter fans we have in here, but uh, I say Dolores Umbridge and hopefully your skin crawls, right? Like, I, we read those books with our kids and every time we said her name, it was just like Umbridge, Umbridge, Umbridge. It's just, it kind of, it even sounds good or bad even if you haven't read the books. Like, it just is not a pleasant name. And she's not a pleasant character. It's easy to not like her. Um, I'm a child of the 80s. So, you know, when I was growing up, it was the Russians and the commies. They were the bad guys. So Top Gun, what do they do? They go and fight Russian MiGs out in some ocean somewhere against some country. But it's very clear they were fighting the Russian MiGs, right? Uh, Red Dawn, that's another. I'm a guy. I like war movies. I apologize. I don't have any like little women type characters here to hate for you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, But Red Dawn, it's a bunch of teenagers, which I'm like, yeah, let's go fight them in the woods. Of course we can pull this off, right? But who is it? It's the commies. We're going to fight the commies. Um, And who can forget Ivan Drago from Rocky IV? Uh, it's, It's great. Like, go America, right? It's easy to dislike those characters for a couple of reasons. One, they're not real. So it's kind of like we, we let the, the baser part of our character just like go off on these guys. Like, Ivan Drago's going down, right? But the, the other thing that if we're not careful is we can view characters like the Pharisees as just that characters. These were real people that really interacted with Jesus, that really misrepresented Jesus, that really blasphemed Jesus. And there's tendencies and there's heart postures in them that if we're not careful, we can be prone to as well. Um, there's, two way, there's two problems with this thinking that dismisses or cancels the Pharisees and doesn't take to heart some of the, some of the interactions that Jesus Jesus has with him. The first, the first reason, it's very simple. Jesus doesn't hate the Pharisees. Jesus doesn't hate them. The fact that he continues to engage them, to even eat with them, despite their threats, their misrepresentations, their stubbornness, it shows the openness of God's mercy to even religious sinners. That's good news for us because Christianity is that, like, Christianity is one of those things where 
I, this was my experience. I stepped into it. It's the culture, but I stepped into it and I, I expected to be perfect overnight. And I, I, I thought more of what people thought of me. What would they think if they saw this than I did of just saying, you know what? I messed up and repent. And there's so much insecurity that, that can come from that. But the good news is Jesus hasn't given up on Pharisees. Jesus doesn't hate Pharisees. And the fact that He engages them is good news for us this morning who struggle with some of the same heart postures that they do. The second problem is that if, if we're being honest, uh, we, we battle these. We battle some of these these same things, these themes of, of pride, of hypocrisy, of fear of missing out and maintaining our little, our little shelter, our, our little part of the world at all costs. I think what we'll see in these passages this morning is, is Luke is trying to root out of us. He's trying to disciple us to root out fear of missing out, hypocrisy, and pride. How's he do it? First, let's look at 13, 31 to 35. And the first encouragement Luke gives us is to fight the fear of missing out by focusing on the mission. Fight the fear of missing out by focusing on the mission. So uh, right on the heels of, of Jesus, of, of, of teaching to strive to enter through the narrow gate, right after that, he goes into this interaction with the Pharisees. And these Pharisees, they come and says, verse 31, at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, this is right on the heels of, of, of the, this interaction that ends with now some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last. He's drilling in to the Pharisees in particular. And the first way that, that Luke is, is, is wanting to root out that, that temptation to be a modern day Pharisee is this idea that we've got to, we've got to hold on to what we've got. We've got to guard our kingdom. Um, the Pharisees were more concerned with maintaining status, possession, and influence than embracing Jesus. Their sin may have been more subtle. It may have been more respectable and presentable, but it still kept them out of the kingdom of God. In, in those days, to be a Pharisee was a, a, a big status thing. They, there was wealth that came from it. There was social standing that came with it. Besides just the, the, the spiritual components of thinking I'm elite in relationship to, to God. I like how C.S. Lewis describes these kinds of ways where even as religious sinners, we can keep ourselves in our religious sin. 
This is what he says What's in mere Christianity. What Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors, he's talking about Adam and Eve, was this idea that they could be like gods, could set up on their own as if they created themselves, be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside God, apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. Again, their sins may be more presentable, but their sins are no less keeping them out of the kingdom than somebody like a Zacchaeus or somebody that we read about later in, in Luke's gospel. Um, how do we battle that? How do we battle that desire to, to maintain our status, to maintain our stuff, to, to want to be uh, patted on the back and told how great we are? How, how do we properly order those desires, those things? It's by focusing, it's, it's by following Jesus' lead here and focusing on our mission. And what, what as believers is our mission? It's very simple. Love God, love neighbor. That's our mission. We fight this fear of missing out. Is God enough? Is what Jesus has done for me enough? We, we fight that temptation to, to question that by focusing on the fact that we're to love God and we're to love neighbor. He, he's threatened uh, by these Pharisees. And, and it, it, this is a, it's kind of an ambiguous interaction. But when you read it in the broader context, I think it's clear that these Pharisees have at, at best mixed motivations. Maybe they are truly warning Jesus, hey, Herod's going to get you if, you if you keep going down this road and you stay here. But I think when we read it in the broader context... It's not that they really care that Herod's going to kill Jesus. I think it's more that they just don't want to deal with Jesus. He was a threat to them. He was a threat to their status. He was a threat to their standing. Uh, several times throughout the gospel, we hear this refrain of, of, if we don't do something about this Jesus guy, he's going to come in, disrupt everything, and the Romans are going to do what? They're going to take our place. They're going to take the nation from us. Um, but Jesus isn't moved. He isn't distracted. He's laser focused on not being terrified of, of, a, of a puppet king, but of, of continuing to set his face to Jerusalem. It can't happen any other way. I've got work to do today, tomorrow, and the next day, and then my race will be complete. My job will be finished. And he's entrusting himself to God because he's going to a place where he knows he's going to be killed. So why would he ever be afraid of Herod? Yeah, I know I'm going to die. And it's God's will, it's God's plan, and I've set my face to go to Jerusalem. But even in this kind of harsh response, if you will, to the, to the Pharisees, there's also still this holding out of, of hope, of mercy to these Pharisees that are bent on maintaining their status. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. What is Jesus' response? You get what you deserve. You made your bed, now sleep in it. No. 
His response is, oh, Jerusalem, excuse me. His response is, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? Satisfaction, protection, all of those great benefits that we desire and seek to fill in so many other ways, they're only ever going to happen under the wings of our Heavenly Father. And he offers it to these Pharisees, to these religious sinners. Um, a couple of thoughts about this, this part of, the, of the, the passage today. First is this, is we, we never miss out on anything by doing what Jesus tells us to do. Never. It is never to our detriment to not obey Jesus. It always works out for our, in our favor. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. If you feel like you're lacking something, know that Jesus realizes that. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. We don't have to fear missing out on something because when we obey and do what Jesus tells us to do, He gives us everything that we have to have. Next thing is, we, we've got to be mindful in our own hearts that these, these Pharisees found a religious way to remain in their sin. They found a religious way to remain in their sin. Uh, th- that's a danger for us as well. But the way, the first way we can fight that is to focus on our mission, to follow God, to love God, and to love others. Luke's second encouragement to us as we battle these, these, these attitudes that we see in, the, in, the, in his interaction, in Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees, is to know when to say, I was wrong. In other words, put hypocrisy to death. Um, I'm sure this is not true of any of you guys, but I was wrong in a really big way earlier this year. Has anybody been wrong before? Um, yeah. Yeah. What about today? There we get more hands. There we go. Um, so when Ashley and I first started dating, um, she would wear high heels, and I didn't like that because she was taller than me in high heels, and it just was like I was insecure. I was a knucklehead single guy. I finally got a girl who likes me, and what is my gripe and complaint? She's taller than me when she wears high heels. What a what a knucklehead. I'm just a married knucklehead now, but. Um, this year, maybe two months ago, you know, the kids are growing, they're getting big. Nathan in particular has just shot up over the last year. And so we, we do the whole take the shoes off, stand back to back, see who's taller than who. And the, the older girls are frustrated because now the little, the little boys are just as tall, if not taller than them. And one of the kids goes, Dad, you need to stand back to back to mom. And I was, I, you know, like I did my best uh, puffed out chest peacock impression and sashayed over there and put my back to back and uh, she was taller than me. And I was like, oh, I felt like I've been living a lie for 17 years. Um, in that moment, you know, it's silly, but in that moment, I could have been bent out of shape. I could have sulked off into the corner and you know, figured out ways to sh- shrink her or something like that. Hey, I'm going to need you to stand in a closet with 50-pound weights on your head for the next six years, so sorry. 
Um, but no, I, I am now have, I'm, I've accepted it, I've owned it, and we have a little fun with it. But, uh, but when we think about being wrong, you know, it's one thing to be wrong about whether or not you're taller than your spouse. It's something else to be wrong when you're confronted with what is undeniable activity of, of God and to call it something other, other than what it is and to embrace the implications of that. And that's what we see as Jesus uh, heals a man with dropsy on the Sabbath here. This is the, this is the third time that Luke has recorded a, a healing of Jesus's on the Sabbath. The, uh, the first one, there's a man with a withered hand, and there's a, there's a lot of back and forth between the, uh, the interaction with the Pharisees, but also the healing itself. And then a couple weeks ago, Gabe went over the, the, the healing of the, of the woman with the, who was hunched over, uh, who couldn't straighten her back up. That, was the, you know, that one was very much ab- about the healing and, the, and the, the, the urgency that this woman needed to be healed because of, because of how much she was suffering and for how long she'd suffering. This healing is not really about the healing at all. It's about the Pharisees, and it's about their hardness of heart. First one of chapter 14, One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy, and Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him, and he healed him, and he sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? They could not reply to these things. They were wrong and unwilling to own it. A um, couple of things to, to notice here. Um, this, this idea or this word here, they were watching him carefully. That's, that's not a, a just kind of an investigative, hey, we're just going to sit back and wait and see what happens. No, this was them trying to capture Jesus, to catch him in the middle of breaking the Sabbath, according to their understanding. Um, How the man with dropsy got there is a little suspicious. Uh, It could have been that the Pharisees invited him, knowing that, hey, if he's here, Jesus sees him, there's a really good chance that Jesus is going to heal him. So they kind of set up their own sting to catch Jesus. Um, It could have been that the guy just wandered in off the street. Now for you and me, that's weird. Like if I'm having a barbecue in my backyard and some rando just kind of, just kind of starts doing the slip and slide and eating the ribs, we're we're all going to be like, this is weird. Who is this guy? Right? Back then, not weird. Normal. I don't know why, but it is. Either way, how he got there doesn't really, it doesn't really matter in the flow of this story. Another thing that's, there, there, it could go a couple different ways is, is the, uh, the significance or the severity of his, of his plight, of his dilemma. He's got dropsy, which is a disease that causes people to retain water. Um, so he, uh, he, he's, he's retained water. There is talk that, that in those days, Pharisees would have considered that particular ailment to have been the result of sexual sin. So then you add in this layer that they are, 
they're kind of murmuring, having side conversations about who's this guy? Why is he here? What is he thinking? So you've got that element to it. Um, he, the, the retaining of water for sure, though, points to a, a, a more severe and more significant um, problem. And, and, and likely this man was suffering from organ failure. So even if he's not on death's door at that moment in the synagogue on the Sabbath, he's not very different from the woman who was hunched over for 18 years who is suffering. This man is going to die from what from from the from his body fighting against itself. And so Jesus again, it's not about the healing, it's about the Pharisees. It just literally, as matter of fact, Jesus sees the man, he heals the man, and he sends him on his way so that he can engage, hopefully, these Pharisees. And, and he goes and zeroes in right into this question and says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Which raises the question of what's the point of the Sabbath anyways? That's what he's trying to drive at is to get them to see what you've made the Sabbath into is not okay. The Sabbath was supposed to be a day of rest. It was supposed to be a day that gives life. It was, it was a day to lay down burdens. And they've created this world, this system, in which what was meant to give life was actually a burden on God's people. And Jesus is not okay with that. He's not okay with that. And he wants to point it out to them. And what do they do? They can't say anything. Again, better be thought a fool to keep your mouth shut than to open it and remove all doubt. They're taking this to heart and they keep their mouth shut. They don't say anything. But Jesus doesn't let them off the hook. He's going to tighten the screws a little bit more. And he says, which of you having a son or an ox that's fallen into a well on a Sabbath, they will not immediately pull him out. The answer is none of you. Every single one of you dads in this synagogue, on this, or excuse me, at this meal with Jesus on the Sabbath, every single one of you would have given life back to your son who's in peril. Not only would you have done it for your son, you would have done it for an animal. How much more important is it to give life to an image bearer who's suffering from organ failure than it is to give life? life and to preserve the life of an ox? The answer to that question is, it's not. It's not okay. It's more important and more significant and more necessary to give life to image bearers, especially on a Sabbath, because that's the perfect day for life to happen. I think of the book of Hebrews and talking about, the author of Hebrews talks about entering into his rest it's where we can finally and completely put our burdens down this man we don't hear about his reaction and that's not the point of the story but i can imagine he went home thrilled to have finally been able to lay down a burden that had weighed him down for many many years probably the sabbath was meant to give life it was not meant to be a burden it was meant to remind us we aren't self-sufficient we aren't all powerful we need rest and the pharisees had turned it into something a, a, a disfigured distorted version of what it was supposed to be a few thoughts um a few thoughts here 
first off, how, how do we how do we avoid this? How do we avoid saying hypocrisy? I think the first thing is hypocrisy is one of those things that starts in the heart. So we think of Psalm 139, where at the very beginning of that psalm, it's a famous psalm about God making us, knitting us in our mother's womb. He sees us. He knows us. He made us. But at the end of this, the psalmist prays and asks and says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. As Jesus is interacting with these Pharisees, they don't ask him if it's lawful or not. There's no conversation, but Jesus sees and and hears and answers and says everything that he says to confront them. He knows our hearts. We need to ask him to reveal it to us that God search us, know our hearts. If there's hypocrisy, God help us to root it out. Second thing to consider here as we battle hypocrisy is be quick to admit when you're wrong. We tell our kids all the time, listen, you are wrong, own it, ask for forgiveness and move on. That's the quickest way to bring restoration and healing. The longer we let sin fester and the longer we let ourselves dig into, I'm not wrong in this situation. The longer things are delayed, the longer things are dragged out, the longer that we have to live with a conscience that's, that's slowly hardening to, the, to, to a sensitivity to God's leading, a sensitivity to obeying the Lord. When you're wrong, be quick to admit it. Luke's last um, encouragement to us as we battle against the attitude of a Pharisee that, that, can, that can creep into our own hearts is to exalt ourselves to the lowest place. We need to exalt ourselves to the lowest place. After this uh, interaction with the healing, Luke moves right in to Jesus telling a, a parable when he saw how the Pharisees and those others at, the, uh, at, at, this, at this meal would choose their seats. Starting in verse 7, Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you'll have to begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, when we think of parables, we typically think of maybe a little more embellished stories, Um, you know. Uh, kind of a, a phrase, kind of a parable, if you will, is it's easier for a, uh, a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. Uh, or we think of how many, Peter, how many times should we forgive? Seven times? No, seven times, 70 times seven. Um, so we think of parables as more of, a, of an embellished 
kind of, uh, of story to, to drive home a point. But here, it, it, it's not. It's, it's kind of taken from every day. And especially in this context, they would have, they, it would have landed very well. They're at a meal. They've just done the, the jockeying. I mean, if you've ever been to maybe a work dinner or a family function, um, you know, there's always the one person that you want to sit next to, right? In this meal, it would have been the host of the party. They would have been, they, or the meal. They would, have, they would have sat in a U-shape and the, the places of honor would have been the seats right and left of the host. So I kind of have this picture in my head of, you know, this guy's kind of scoping the scene. He's looking around. He sees, oh, I have to be closer than that guy. So he's kind of gauging himself based off that guy's movement. So he's watching him. Oh, you're tied up talking. I'm making a beeline for the spot. So that's kind of the picture here is that he's watched these Pharisees jockey for position to be close to the host. And he's going to point out the pride that comes with that. And he's going to give the remedy for that pride. Um, they've been watching him in the, in the last story where he healed the man. But here Jesus is watching them. The tables have turned and Jesus is going to, again, he's going to tighten the screws on them. Um, he gives an interpretation of, of everything that he's driving to with this parable of here's how you pick a seat. Here's how you don't pick a seat. Here's why. It's not so that we have better etiquette when we go to dinner parties. It's not his point here. It's more of a, a theological, a big picture, a heart issue. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So how do we fight pride? We exalt ourselves to the lowest place. That's hard sometimes, especially if there's an injustice involved. I've been wronged. I've been put in a place where I've been made to look bad. So even in a good thing, our sense of justice, we still have to battle to walk humbly, to choose humility as we seek to follow Jesus. Um, I think of a few things that I hope are encouragements as we, as we try to Walk humbly with God. First Peter 5, 7. Clothe yourselves, all of you. Excuse me, 5 verses 5 through 7. Clothe, all, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That last part is what we kind of tee in on. We're to cast all our cares and anxieties and frustrations on Jesus. Why? Because he cares for us. That in and of itself is perfectly good motivation to cast our anxieties on Jesus. But if we're going to walk humbly, if we're not going to be like the Pharisees who needed to be recognized, who needed to be told how great they were, who wanted to maintain their status, if we're going to fight against that, if we're going to exalt ourselves to the lowest place, when we pray, when we cast our anxieties on Him, we need to put it in the broader context that by praying, by casting on Him, we're humbling ourselves. You want to know how to humble yourself? Cry out to a God who's stronger, bigger, and more capable than you are. Recognize that you're not strong enough, capable enough, and cry out to Him. That demonstrates humility. That is a way to exalt yourself to the lowest place. 
Philippians 2, familiar passage. Jesus humbles himself by taking on the form of a servant, by humbling himself even in the way that he dies. But before that, Paul writes, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Uh, Again, there's a mindset, there's a, a heart posture that says, think, consider in your mind and in your heart, put others above yourself. Think of them as more significant than yourself. So there's a mindset, the shift that has to happen. But the practical move in all of that too is still not just a mindset shift, but also practically, don't just look out for your interests. Look out for the interests of others. In fact, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Make margin to look out for other people. That's how we exalt ourselves to the lowest place. Finally, Romans 12, 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. I am very competitive. My wife is very competitive and my kids are, oh my goodness. They did, the apples didn't fall far from the tree. Um, if, but if we're going to compete on things, let's do what Paul says. Let's compete in how we show each other honor. When I honor someone, I'm humbling myself and I'm recognizing their value, their worth, their status, their accomplishments, the, the character that God has worked in them, and I'm showing them honor. That's another way that we can exalt ourselves to the lowest place. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you include religious sinners in your kingdom. Lord, those that turn from their sin, that humble themselves, that embrace the forgiveness that comes through Jesus' death, life for us, and his resurrection for us. Lord, I pray that as we seek to root out the attitudes that are in our hearts that could make us into modern day parable, excuse me, Pharisees. Lord, I pray that you would help us to work hard and diligently to cast our cares on you, to know that we have everything that we need for life and godliness. You've given it to us. Lord, to know that you exalt the humble, but you humble the proud. God, help us to remember these things. Help us to be diligent to show others honor. Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.